here, and it's uh, my pleasure to bring the Word of God to you this morning from the book of Ephesians, and we are finishing off chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And once again, this is one long sentence in the Greek, one of these great Paul sentences. So let's, uh, let's pay attention as we hear the reading of God's Word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear what you've spoken in your word, we pray that you would send your spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we may understand and believe what you have said to us. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you get someone to love you? I don't know, we got anybody here today who's looking for love? Don't, don't raise your hand. I got married recently, and so, yeah, yeah. And so it's time for me to start giving insufferable advice about romance to single people, because I think, I think that's what married people do. I'm new to this, but. So I wanted to try to find something helpful, helpful today, and I've got a spell, a magic spell written thousands of years ago, around the time that Paul wrote this letter, actually. So here, here we go. Hopefully this is helpful. I'm going to take, take notes. Starts, I adjure you, demon of the dead, by the meth u makakama pachalizeti. Okay, there's a bunch of like unpronounceable demon names here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. But if you need them, you can come to me afterwards for them. But like a bunch of names. Then we have... Cause Serapion, you just put, change the name to whoever, um, to pine and melt away for the passion of Dioscorus, that's your name. Inflame his heart, cause it to melt, and suck out his blood because of love, passion, and pain for me, until Serapion comes to Dioscorus, and let him do all the things in my mind, and let him continue loving me until he arrives in Hades. Okay, I hope that's helpful. What, is this, what does this say about the person who wrote this spell and how they were trying to deal with, his, with their problems? You know, where were they looking for power, for effective solutions? And we don't just have love spells, by the way. There are spells just like this for all kinds of problems. And, you know, they might be, seem silly to us, looking back 2,000 years later, but I, mean, what, I wonder what future historians will think when they look back at our solutions say, for finding love, 
relationship books that promise you the rules that you can use to understand slash manipulate the opposite sex. Or, you know, pickup artists on YouTube telling you, here's the trick, it will work every time. And maybe that's our version of magic today. And let me ask you as we're beginning this sermon, where do you go to find, like, power, the thing that works for the problems in your life? Well, Paul was writing this letter uh, to a city where many people were looking to the kind of power in this spell in order to solve the problems in their lives. And I want us to keep us that in mind as we're exploring this passage. So let's turn to our text here. In this text, Paul uh, starts a prayer, which arguably continues all the way through to the end of chapter 3 with some tangents uh, here and there. Um, and as we look at the beginning of this prayer, we'll, we'll stop before we go into chapter 2. That's enough for me. Um, I want us to see three points. First, Paul gives thanks for the Ephesians. Second, Paul asks that God would give the Ephesians knowledge. And third, God worked powerfully in Christ's ascension. Let me repeat those. First, Paul gives thanks for the Ephesians. Next, Paul asks that God would give the Ephesians knowledge. And third, God worked powerfully in Christ's ascension. And I will warn you that the third point will be the longest, because there's a lot to unpack there. But let's start with point one. Paul gives thanks for the Ephesians. And why does Paul give thanks? Well, he actually has a lot of reasons. He starts with, for this reason, and and that probably looks back to the verses that come right before, where he talks about how the uh, Ephesians believed initially and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, And then Paul goes on to say that he's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, Paul helped start this church in Ephesus. But by this point, he's been gone probably about seven years How encouraging it must have been to him to hear that they were excelling in faith and love when he couldn't be there to shepherd them and guide them himself. Their faith was in Jesus. Jesus was the one that they were looking to and trusting in. And they had love for the saints. That's other Christians. You could look at this church and see from how they loved each other, see how they loved believers in other churches, and see a picture of God's love. And so Paul remembers them in prayer continually. It's his regular practice to give thanks for them. Let me make a little brief application at this point. I think we can take Paul as an example to follow here. What would it look like if you and I made it our diligent pursuit to give thanks in prayer for other believers? I think it's actually more easy sometimes to focus on the way we're annoyed by fellow Christians, um, ways in which they're failing. Maybe we're drawn to church controversy, either just because we kind of like the drama, or maybe because it makes us feel a little bit superior. Uh, We can feel right or pick the side who's wrong. But what if we made it our practice to identify places where our brothers and sisters were strong, places where their faith was inspiring or where their love was exemplary, and then thank God for it. And you know, it doesn't just say here that Paul feels thankful for the Ephesians, though I'm sure he does, but it says he gives thanks, which is really much more active 
Um, and that's something I think is helpful for me because maybe, maybe even when I'm struggling to feel thankful for other Christians, I can still make it a discipline of giving thanks for them. Like pursuing, looking for the ways in which they are strong and thanking God for the gifts he's given to my brothers and sisters. Well, that's just a brief little point there um, for the first point. But let, let's move on to our second point. Paul asks that God would give the Ephesians knowledge. Um, he's thanked God for their faith and love, for what, how they're already doing. But now he's going to turn from thanksgiving to petition. He's going to ask God to grow them and give them new knowledge or maybe perhaps give them a deeper understanding of what they already know. Notice that Paul's request for knowledge has this Trinitarian shape to it. He asks God, the Father of glory, to give this knowledge. But you know, before he calls God Father, he addresses him as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, almost like he's trying to remind us that God is our Father because Jesus Christ is our Lord. And he doesn't just ask him for knowledge, but to send the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And that's because none of us can have this knowledge of God if the spirit doesn't come and enlighten us. This is something Paul actually wants to hammer home in Ephesians. The kind of knowledge he's praying for isn't something we can get by our own investigation, our own efforts, our own cleverness. He reminds them in verse 18 that they, uh, uh, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Previously, they were in darkness. They needed the Spirit to come and shine his light in their hearts if they were going to be able to believe. Even their faith is a gift. Put a, put a pin in that one. We'll come back to it in the next chapter. For now, though, let's move on to what it is that Paul is praying for them to know. He lists three things, and I'm going to talk about the first two in this point, and we'll get to number three next. The first thing Paul asks that they would know is the hope to which he has called you. It's interesting. He's given thanks for their faith and love, but where he prays that the Ephesians will grow is in hope. Hope in the New Testament is not just sort of like a, a, a vague wishfulness. It's, it's a confidence that God is going to keep his promises. And here, Paul says that this hope comes from God's calling. Our place in God's kingdom isn't based on what we are able to make happen, but on the powerful voice of God's, a voice that's able to create us anew out of nothing. Their hope is placed in the fact that God has called them to be a people. However much of a mess they may be now, God is taking them somewhere. The second thing Paul wants them to know is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So this inheritance is probably not their inheritance that God gives them. I mean, that is a biblical idea. Paul talks about that inheritance in verse 14. But this here is God's inheritance. It's the prize God's going to receive at the end of his labors. Deuteronomy 2.9 says, The portion of the Lord is his people, and Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. You know, all over the Old Testament, God refers to his people as his inheritance. What Paul wants the Ephesians to know is something about how God sees the church. God sees believers, his saints, as his riches, his treasure. He sees them as glorious. He sees them as they 
are in Jesus. And, and he sees what he's making them into, and he rejoices in that. He's well pleased. Let's stop and apply this for a second. Yeah, what would your life look like if you had this kind of knowledge? If the Holy Spirit really pressed this deep into your heart? When you think about how God sees you, what comes to mind? You know, what sort of thing do you think God would have to say about you? I think my mind tends to go right to my sins and imperfections. You know, God knows everything, and I don't live up to his righteous standard of perfection. So it's easy for me to think of God only as hypercritical. And you know, it is true that God is a holy God, and he calls us to repent for our sins, but that's not the whole story. God is also a loving God. He's a God who came out into the darkness to find me, a God who called me, a God, when he looks at me, he sees the glory of his Son in which I am clothed. And he sees what he's changing me into. You know, I'm, I, I'm a teacher on the side. I, I, I teach a class, and I think sometimes, you know, maybe this is the way teachers look at students. As a teacher, you can look, and you don't just see, oh, man, you know, say, for instance, like, these guys are terrible at Hebrew. I mean, they've only been doing it for a couple months. What you, but you see how they're growing, and you see where they could go. Or maybe it's even more like a parent with their children, where there's this unconditional love that's the foundation and a desire to see them grow. You might still notice their, imperf their imperfections and their problems as a parent, but that's not what defines the way that you see them. This is how God sees us. And what's more, this is how God sees the whole church. I'll, I'll leave this as a homework assignment for you. Not just what would it look like if I really believed that this is how God saw me, but what if I started to see the whole church this way? What if I started to see it through God's eyes as God's precious treasured possession? But I'll leave that as an assignment for you. Uh, for now, we'll move on to point three. Paul asks that God would give them knowledge of his powerful working in Christ's ascension. It's kind of a mouthful. Let's, let's break this down a bit. First of all, the attribute of God that Paul focuses on here is power. I don't know if you caught that in the sort of heap of words Paul is piling up here. Uh, the immeasurable greatness of his power, the working of his great might. These are all power words that Paul is drawing on here. Among them, working is a particularly important word for Paul. It's God's power in action. God is all-powerful. You know, Paul says that his power is immeasurable, but this isn't just a piece of theological trivia about God. God doesn't just have power. God's power is at work among them. The immeasurable greatness of God's power is towards us, who believe. Paul's going to keep talking about God's work in us in the next chapter, so we can leave some of that for a future sermon, but before Paul gets to exploring God's work in us, he turns to look back at the story of Jesus. Look at the end of verse 19. The working of his great might, now see how it connects to the next verse, that he worked in Christ. 
Paul is saying that the working God's doing among the Ephesians now is the same kind of working that he did when he raised Christ from the dead. It's as if he's saying, you know, if you're going to know the power and the might and the immeasurable greatness of God's working for you, you need to turn and have a look first at what God did in the life of Jesus. And he specifically focuses on two parts of Jesus' life. First, he mentions his resurrection from the dead. And this is, of course, a powerful work of God, bringing new life out of death. Paul talks about that all over his letters. But here, he moves on from the resurrection to focus on what comes next. Jesus' ascension and being seated at the right hands of the Father. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You know, maybe this is something we aren't used to hearing as much about compared to the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension. But Paul's going to focus on it a lot in this letter. We're going to learn about it a lot. Um, And notice that both the resurrection and the ascension are described as the working of God here. They're both examples of God's powerful work in the life of Christ. In fact, let me be a little more provocative. The resurrection of Jesus would be of no value to you if he did not also ascend into heaven and sit at the Father's right hand. Why? Why not? Why, why not? Well, let's, let's keep reading and see if we can find out. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Okay, so since God raises Jesus into the heavens, Jesus is given power over all the other powers. And by the way, when Paul uses the terms rule, authority, power, and dominion, he is speaking especially of spiritual powers. We know this because later in the book, in chapter 6, he says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and forces of evil in the heavenly places. Many of the same words. These are the same forces to whom the neighbors of the Ephesians will be looking for power. Like in that spell I read earlier. You know, our word for demon comes from the Greek word daimon. They, They consider these figures as daimons, but they didn't have the negative connotations it has for us now. They looked to these spiritual figures as people who could give them power, as entities they could invoke and get blessings from. But Paul says that the church is at war with these powers, and that's because actually they enslave the people who are looking to them for help. And in his ascension, Jesus is given special spiritual power over these forces. Their reign over humanity is no longer uncontested. They are placed under his feet. You know, Ephesus was actually a central hub for these powers. We we hear that On the image of Artemis, in the temple in Ephesus, there were names engraved. And these names were exactly like the kinds of names I read from that spell earlier. Secret names that invoked powerful spiritual beings. Experts in magic would collect and hoard these names because they thought that it would give them power. But Paul says that Jesus is given a power above every name that is named. We're told in Acts that when the Ephesians first converted, one of the things they did was they brought their spell books 
and they burned them because they realized that the real power of God is found in the reign of Christ, not in the names of these spiritual beings. Paul mentions this power is not only in this age, but also in the one to come. It's something that's not completely fulfilled yet. The author of Hebrews says, we don't yet see every power subjected to Christ, but there's also a sense in which this is true even now. When Jesus sat down on his heavenly throne, the spiritual power to cast down these evil forces is unleashed. Paul's also drawing on a couple of Old Testament psalms here in his understanding of Jesus' ascension. One of those is Psalm 8, which talks about God creating humanity and putting everything under their feet. Uh, And that psalm mentions sheep and oxen and birds and fish, uh, all animals that humans have dominion over. But when the psalm comes true, it comes true in an even greater way. In the raised and glorified humanity of Jesus, it's not just the animals, but even the angels that are under his feet. Truly, all things are placed under his feet. And then in Psalm 110, which Amanda read for us earlier, we see God seat his king at his right hand and give him victory over his enemies. But in the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm, the enemies aren't just the Assyrians or the Babylonians who come over the river to kill you and take your stuff. They're all the spiritual powers that oppose God and his people. The point of all this is that God gives Christ a new kind of power when he seats him at his right hand. I'm not talking about Jesus' divine nature here. As God, Jesus is eternally equal to the Father in power. But I'm talking about his glorified humanity. The power of God against the forces of Satan is unleashed in a new way through the risen and reigning humanity of Christ. Paul goes on to explain this some more. He says, He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. So Jesus is the head, and the church is his body. That means he's the source of life to the church. He is the one who reigns and holds authority in the church, the one who guides and directs it. Without Jesus, the church would be like a body with no head. Wouldn't go very well. But he isn't just head over the church. He's head over all things to the church. That all things, it's not just the church, but it's the whole world, heavens and earth, animals, people, angels, demons, all of it. And that means that the church has nothing to fear. The church is called to serve Christ in the world, and that's going to involve opposition, both human and demonic. But God has given her a head who is over all things. Next, Paul goes on to say that the body of Christ, the church, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, so it turns out that the interpretation of this phrase is is highly debated. Um, The first thing I need to explain is that who fills all in all is probably a bad translation. Should probably be who is filled all in all. Now, in saying this, I'm going against basically all English translations. However, the majority of ancient interpreters, as well as the majority of modern, up-to-date commentaries, all agree that it should be is filled. You know, it's kind of weird. It's kind of a weird thing. The church fathers and all of those slick modern scholars are over here, and all the English translations are over here. Um, 
But, you know, I mean, those ancient church fathers, many of them actually knew Greek, so I, I tend to side with them. So, you know, if you've got a pen, get out your pen, add a little footnote on fills, and put is filled in the bottom. But what could that mean? You know, I think the translators get it wrong, because we're used to think about God filling all things, like divine omnipresence, that's a familiar idea. Um, maybe we're used to Christ filling the church with his spirit, that's an image we like. Um, maybe that's the sort of thing we think Paul should have said here. But what does it mean for him to say that Christ is being filled? I can think of two possibilities. One is that Jesus is being filled with the believers who are added to the church. So the church is the fullness of Christ because God's body is being filled with believers. Now, you might say to me something like, you know, Jamie, is it really a good and pious thing to say that Jesus is being, you know, filled uh, by these people who are added as if he lacks something that and he, you know, needed us? But hey, this is the same Paul who said in Colossians 1.24 that when he suffered in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So, you know, if you have a problem with that way of talking, take it up with Paul. He says something very similar there. See, as an individual, Jesus is complete and perfect in every way, of course. But as the head of the church, God's inheritance, the people he came to save, he's being filled. He didn't just come to save himself. Jesus' mission isn't finished until all of the nations are brought in. Well, that's one thing that Paul might mean. But there's another possibility as well. Paul might mean that in his risen and enthroned state, Jesus is filled by the Father, filled with glory. You know, they say that the Apostle John ministered in Ephesus. Um, and I would imagine Paul would be aware of that. And I think it, maybe it's kind of like how if somebody here asks me a question about the Old Testament, you know, I say, oh, that's a good question, and I think, and I try to give a good answer, and, and then, then what do I often hear if it's someone who's been here a long time? Well, O. Palmer Robertson said, and for those of you who are new to Wallace, and by new I mean not have been here for decades, O. Palmer Robertson was our pastor of long ago who is also a very well-recognized Old Testament scholar. So, you know, whenever I answer a question, I know that they probably heard a better answer from Opal Robertson first. I don't know if Paul felt that way. You know, John, the beloved disciple, you know, the guy who, uh, you know, was used to just hang out right next to Jesus is, you know, ministering here, and he's like, hey, guys, uh, I wrote you a letter. Hope you like it. But let's try to pull in some parallels from John's gospel to help us. John seven thirty nine. Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to, were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John 14, 16 to 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 14, 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. John 15, 26, but when the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. This always is an amazing passage. Jesus is saying, it's good that I'm leaving you. 
It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, you getting the broad point here? If Christ is not glorified by his Father, if he's not filled with glory, he cannot send the Spirit, and if he cannot send the Spirit, he cannot dwell with his people. So maybe what Paul is saying here is that God has filled Jesus with his own fullness when he raises him and glorifies him and sees him at his right hand. And so now Jesus fills us with the fullness of God. This is why the church is the fullness of God. God fills Jesus, Jesus fills the church. You know, last week at home group, Mercy Shepherd asked a very profound question. Because here we are just talking about the, the temple, and, and the glory, God in his glory leaving the temple or being in the temple or dwelling in the temple. And Mercy asked us, I thought God is everywhere. So how can he be in the temple or leave the temple or any of these kinds of things? And you know what? That was a very good question. God is everywhere. So what does it mean when we talk about his fullness being somewhere? I think... The way to start to answer that biblically, you know, we see Solomon talk about God dwelling in the temple, and he asks himself the question, well, God can't even be contained in the heavens, so how can he dwell in the temple? And where he seems to go is that what God's presence means is that he hears the prayers of his people and that he acts in their lives. I think that what it means for God's presence to be specially with us is at least partially, the fact that God is at work. Yes, God is everywhere, but we can't see it. But sometimes we do. This was especially true in Jesus. You know, Jesus said, if you don't believe that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father, look at my works. Look at the work of God in Christ. And now this is true in the church as well. And so we can, when Paul says the church is the fullness of God, what it means is that because God is at work in here, and God is making us resemble him, we can experience God's presence in a way that is usually completely hidden from us. That's my best attempt to answer the very difficult theological question. But what's the upshot of all this? It is that there is a power at work in the church. The power, the glory of God is present in the church. And it's present in the church because the Spirit of God is present in the church. And the Spirit of God is present in the church because Christ sent the Spirit to us. And Christ was able to send the Spirit to us because the Father seated him at his right hand, filling his humanity with glory and giving him all rule and authority. You see, that's why we need the ascension. If God doesn't seat Jesus at his right hand, none of that life-giving power of the resurrection can be poured out into our lives through the Spirit. The church would have no head. There wouldn't be a church. Just one man who triumphed over death for himself alone. But since God has seated Christ at his right hands, we have the power of God working among us right now. I want to end this morning by simply underlying what, underlining what a privilege, what a grand calling it is to be in the church if what Paul is saying here is true. Our calling, according to Paul, is nothing less than to be the fullness of God in the world, to image God in the way that we believe, 
in the way we love one another, in the hope that we have. And it's not a privilege that's based on something special in ourselves, not because we weren't called because we were smarter or stronger. It's because God is at work among us and because Jesus is reigning over us. And it's not something we can see with our eyes either. It's something that we have to believe by faith, especially because of all the sin and weakness we see in the church, which doesn't stop God from working. But it is something that is true, even though we can't see it. It's something we can have a confident hope in, that God is working, that he's doing stuff, big, wonderful, miraculous stuff, just like what he did when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him and gave him power to defeat the forces of darkness. So let's believe in that. Let's rest in that. Let's hope in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift above all other gifts that you gave Christ to us. You gave us your son who died for our sins and you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand and gave him to us again as our our head our leader our captain the one who protects and watches over us the one who guides us lord we pray you would help us to hope in that that we would have a deep confidence in the power that is at work among us not in our own power, but in yours. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.